Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye podcast. My name is Sean Maloney and I'm sitting here today with my co-host, Dr. Bruno Fernandez. Bruno, how are you doing? How are you doing, Sean? Good to be here again. Good, good. Um, I'm very excited about our guest today. We have Dr. Hemant Khanna, who is a uh, principal investigator and associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School in the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences. So, Dr. Khanna, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Sean, for the invitation. I'm very excited to join and talk about things. Great. Um, so, just as a as a springboard to dive into this topic, I was hoping maybe you could give a um, brief overview of how genes or what gene therapy is and how it works in the context of treating blinding eye diseases? Oh, yes, sure. Um, So basically, gene therapy is used as a therapeutic modality for diseases where the cause is due to a a mutation or a change in the genetic code of um, of an individual. And basically what happens is in our DNA, there are uh, there is a sequence of bases, and sometimes that sequence is changed due to any number of factors. And if that change is in a is in a place where it was important for function of the eye, then it results in blindness. And what gene therapy does is is basically tries to correct the defect by providing a correct copy of the sequence which is now changed. So you basically correct it and you put it back in the cell and the hope is that the correct copy will now start functioning and you will have a treatment for that disease. That is in general what gene therapy is. And is there any different types of gene therapy, different technologies, or is it all the same? So gene therapy in itself, is it, is, it includes a lot of different things. Basically, the, as I said, gene therapy is defined as correcting the genetic defect. Now, there are multiple ways to go about it. One is to um, give the healthy copy of the gene back. The other is to um, take out the bad copy and then give the healthy copy back. Sometimes the bad copy, if it still remains in the cell, it actually can be toxic it can result in more cell, more uh, um, uh, basically worse outcomes. And another thing is you, another way to correct, do a gene therapy is to go and fix the change itself inside the DNA of the, uh, of the individual uh, in the eye, for example, that is the, called the gene editing. That is a very new concept. So there are multiple ways to get to a therapy for a genetic disease. To, to doing a therapy for genetic disease is gene therapy. And then we have multiple ways to get it done. And would, would you be able to explain us uh, about the CRISPR technology? Like, I mean, how does it fit into the, the realm of uh, gene therapies? Oh yes, definitely. That's a great question. Um, CRISPR is basically a very new and upcoming field and it has gained a lot of traction in the last few years because of its revolutionary technology. That is that we can go into a cell, go inside the nucleus into the DNA and basically change the base, the the bad or the, uh, we can correct the defect right in the genome. And that is what the CRISPR technology helps us do. 
and what one can <clears throat> what one can take from here is there is a um, there is definitely a very uh, big potential for this therapy because it is also called gene editing where you are just going and editing the genetic code of the gene and this way your cells wherever the gene is now edited to the normal sequence it will always keep on producing the normal protein or doing the normal function it will you will never have to replenish it or it will never go back and that is called a perm kind of a permanent fix and that breakthrough actually came a few years ago and now it has taken over and uh, it is now being used as a therapy for eye diseases and for other diseases. So I, so I see that um, there's probably two ways that the gene editing is really uh, helping. Um, in, in one, you're correcting the, uh, you know, the nascent or underlying mutation. Um, but at the same time, what you're doing compared to uh, more traditional gene therapy is that you are not leaving that uh, mutated copy uh, in the cells, right? That, that's not still left over in addition to a new gene being put in. So um, do you expect that it's going to be, you know, more efficacious in general because of that um, second reason as well? Oh, yes, that is correct. Um, definitely, you have, you have said the right thing. This is the gene editing once, once you correct it, of course, because this then works with any kind of disease where having the bad copy is not good for the cell as well as where the bad copy is there but the cell will not mind as long as you provide the good copy in both cases if you do editing you change the sequence back to the normal sequence the bad copy will really not remain there so this is this really is a wonderful way to go forward as a therapy for genetic diseases so when we're talking about uh, some of the testing that um, is done in the lab. You have, I think you have experience in both of these as well, but um, some groups are using, you know, patient derived stem cells uh, versus animal models when looking at gene therapy or, as well as gene editing approaches um, in terms of retinal diseases. Um, maybe could you just touch on why, uh, I guess, how does someone get patient derived stem cells and uh, if there's any advantages or disadvantages to using those versus uh, some of the more traditional animal models. Okay, that is now, this is a wonderful field that people are actually addressing. And this is um, differences, okay, patient-derived stem cells, lab animal models, what do we go for? So each of them has their advantage and a disadvantage. Now, I'll just talk about uh, stem cells first. So you, this is again a revolutionary technology, won a Nobel Prize where you take a sample from a patient, uh, like maybe even a, a skin biopsy, and uh, you can make cells out of it, you can convert them to stem cells, and then you can, those stem cells can be differentiated back into any type of organ, kind of organ culture that you can do with the, what, whatever that um, patient has has defect in, and in this case, it will be the retina, the eye, some of the eye tissues. And this technology has taken a lot of, has basically improved a lot, and a lot of scientists have started making retina in a cup, 
in a retina in a dish kind of uh, scenario where you can take cells and make a retina out of it. And then you can study it. You can study those uh, retinas in a, in a dish and you can get a lot of information because that would be the closest one could get to a human retina or a human eye, which is alive. Otherwise, we depend on cadaver eyes for working on these uh, tissues. Um, so it, that is a very big advantage that you can take the cells and make retina in a dish and then study what in due to the mutation, whatever happened, how is the retina behaving, how it is developing, how the things are going on inside. You can even do recordings, uh, light mediated recordings from the eye like we do ECG for heart. There is uh, a recording thing we can do for the retina, which is called electroretinography. So these things can all be done. So these are very big advantages for patient-derived stem cells, then making them into retina in the lab. Now, and that you can also use to do gene therapy, basically try and test if any gene therapy approach you are using, will it work in those uh, tissues or those retinas which are derived from stem cells? The only downside I see is that even if something works there, it may not be, you cannot directly correlate it to what would happen if you go into a real world situation where you will inject something in the patient's eye. So that is a big kind of a disadvantage, but again, it is countered by the, a lot of advantages also associated with it, that you learn a lot about the eye, about the retina of the patient, which you otherwise would not be able to, to do. Now, yeah. if we come to, I'm sorry, go ahead, sorry. Go, ahead, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, please. Okay. So if you come to animal models, now here, the biggest advantage is that if you model a disease, a genetic disease, human genetic disease in animals, you can study it while the animal is alive. You can actually do a lot of tests at different stages. You can do what people call natural history study, which is not easy to do with patients because you need a lot of patients and sometimes it's not easy to get to recruit patients to do such studies. In animals, you have that control that you can do a lot of studies with any number of animals you want, as long as you're following the right procedures, you can do so many studies, so much uh, natural um, history study that you can understand what happens that is, uh, in a disease from the beginning to the end of the disease. And not only that, you can do a therapy and any type of therapy you want to do, and you can test it. That if I do the therapy at early stage, mid stage or late stage of disease, how it is going to turn out? Will it really work? That is all great. It, it works beautifully. The problem is it is an animal. Again, it is not human. If it is not human, we still don't know what is going to happen. However, there are so much similarities between animal tissues, I'm talking about in this case, in the eye, in the retina, that there is a very, there is a good chance that if something works in animals, especially in larger animals like a pig or a non-human primate, there is a good chance that it will still work. It, 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 
might work in patients. The other good thing about using animal models is you can hone in your technique of how to access the eye, how to access the back of the eye, the front of the eye, uh, using animal models where the size of the eye is similar to what is in humans. And this is done mostly using pigs because pig eyes are very similar in shape, in elasticity and in size to humans. And a lot of residents are taught how to work with eyes by feeling and getting their practices on pig eyes. So that is just an example that I'm saying is that you can hone in your techniques. You can also sometimes see if your, if your strategy will work or not work if you're working in animal because you will be going into an anesthetized animal like you would do in an anesthetized patient. How would you inject? How it is gonna be? However, all things aside, anything, we can have as much data as, as possible with animals or with patient-derived cells. We are never sure until we go to the patient and we test it in patients. That's what clinical trials are for. Okay, so the, the usual sequence, right? Like from uh, uh, until we get to test something in the patient would then be to, to test, test something in a, in a in a produced retina on a petri dish and eventually take that to an animal model and then uh, uh, at the end of the funnel will be the the selected candidates that come in to be tested in humans right yeah that would be i would expect it to be the best way to go but sometimes you cannot do that sometimes the retinas in a dish may not work as efficiently as you would want them to be that technique is still being um, standardized but the most common way is basically going from animals. So you produce the gene in the disease in animals, you study the disease, you develop your therapeutic technique and you show not only that it works, that it is also safe in animals at multiple doses. That is what you need to show to FDA that we have an efficacious and a safe approach with minimal side effects and minimal immune reaction, the body's immune uh, system should not attack. And if those things are done, only then you are, you can go into clinical trial stages. Uh, so, so more on those animal models of uh, the degenerative uh, retinal diseases. Uh, so I guess you use gene editing like to, to, to produce the mutation that uh, uh, characterizes the disease that you want to treat? Yes, that is correct. So now with the advent of gene editing, uh, making an animal model of a disease has become uh, much more standardized and much more fast compared to earlier on where we used to just make it would take a very long time to make a single animal model. Uh, with gene editing, you can actually go directly into the genome of the mouse of the cells in uh, embryonic stem cells. You make the change and then you implant them into a female uh, animal and then they develop into embryos. So that is a very uh, much faster approach than earlier on people used to use. Okay. so. Um, just so I think you brought up a good point there. You're talking about making the gene edits, so to speak, um, at the embryonic stage. Um, how is this 
different and maybe this will touch on uh, some of the challenges currently in terms of employing gene editing as a therapy for you know, fully grown multicellular adults. So, you know, what would be some of the, those challenges um, in terms of implementing this in a clinical setting? Because it seems like the underlying technology is there, you know, animal, animal models are being created constantly uh, using this technique, now using it as a therapy. Uh, what are some of the challenges that, that are being faced? Yeah, that is uh, one of the most important questions with this technology uh, specifically. That gene editing gives a lot of hope, and but then it's also associated with many challenges. And one of the major challenges is the um, the target where you are, where you want the gene editing to work. That will always work. The problem is the off target or kind of like a side effect of that approach. That if you use gene editing, what we are never sure that that edit did not happen anywhere else where you do not want it to work. We always will know where it worked because we know where to look for, where we want it to change something or bring the sequence back. But there is always a chance that it might go and hit somewhere else. So that polishing of this technology is going on. And I think it has improved quite a bit from one when it was previously, when it was first reported, we have now much better approaches to not only have um, a very specific and a sensitive uh, gene editing, we also have approaches to detect if there are any off-targeting of our, of our uh, technology. And if there are, then we are going to do something to uh, not have those off-target effects or minimize the off-target effects. But this is where uh, personally, as a scientist, I think that we can only minimize it. We will never be sure. But then again, we are never sure about a lot of things. So given the advantages of gene editing, I think it is a very good way of going forward as long as this off-targeting can be controlled. And in case of eye diseases, since we are talking about eyes, it presents a very, it's a unique um, uh, system because in the eye, our basically eye is a part of the brain. And in the brain, as we most of us know, that in the brain, you have however number of, however many uh, cells you have at the time of birth or just after birth, you basically have those. We never make new, we never make more cells or mostly you will never have. So you have whatever you have, and once they start to degenerate, that is why we start having diseases. So that means that in this case, the cells are not dividing. What I mean to say is that cells don't divide. If the cells don't divide, there is a very low chance of any off-target that happened, it will get to another cell. So this way, the eye offers a very... Uh, very, it's an excellent platform basically to not only study this gene editing as a tool for gene therapy, but also use it as a gene therapy. And in, so, as we're talking about the use, right, of those uh, uh, gene editing therapies, uh, we often see uh, uh, things that are very successful in the lab, but uh, it takes 
like a long time until it can actually be offered like to 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 patients uh because of many issues right funding regulatory issues and whatnot so do you is there any like timeline like from like let's say if you have a, a successful therapy that showed promises in in the lab like i mean how long can someone expect uh, uh to wait until it can actually be used in patients so as far as gene editing is concerned you have rightly pointed out it takes a long time and that is because it is so new it is so good that sometimes it feels like it is too good to be true mm -hmm. but it is turning out to be true yes it will take time because of all the issues that i just discussed that we want to be extremely sure we want to be very sure that a patient will not have any other side effect um, which uh, otherwise the patient was not going to have anything but then now because of this gene editing being injected we may start seeing something else that is the worst thing that one can do so we want to be sure at least from our side we do our best so that's why it takes a little longer and uh, then a regular a conventional gene therapy would nowadays um, as far as you're saying a timeline i really am not in a position to tell you exactly but what i can say is that the uh, CRISPR trial, first in human CRISPR trial for a gene which is which causes a childhood blindness disorder is going on and the results are awaited anytime now. So that I can say that it has taken about, I think it's been a little over a year that the trial started and it is taking some time to, you know, it takes time to enroll patients that do, uh, start getting some information and then due to this you know you know you have to always have uh, patients reporting back um, compliance and all so it usually takes time but we are eagerly waiting for the first results of this CRISPR trial that is going on by the company Editas is doing it Allergan and uh, Editas so hopefully soon but I would say once you get to the clinical trial stage it will be maybe after a year or two you will start getting some results to get to the clinical trial stage this is where i think it takes the most time for crispr because of its safety issues the 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 investigators who was who were doing this um uh, preclinical research for this trial that took i think it took them easily uh, 5 to 6 years in order to just get this technology where they can have minimal side effects. So it's not easy to do that, but once you have it standardized, maybe the first one will take a longer time, but the next ones we will start to see more, with us to see some quicker timeline, but we have to wait and see. So I think that just a couple of things um, come to mind. Yes, I've heard of that study that's going on now and it's exciting, but um, something, you know, taking a 50,000 foot view of this, for anybody listening to this podcast, what's really exciting is that this is, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first inhuman gene editing trial happening and it's happening for a degenerative blinding eye disease because the eye seems to be uh, an ideal organ or the most ideal organ that we have for testing some of this gene editing. Does that sound like I'm on the right page there? Oh, of course, yes. This is the yeah. first ever inhuman CRISPR trial. Yeah. So, you know, it just, it, what's encouraging there is that, you know, there's, there's a lot of, maybe a lot of uh, hope and excitement 
across you know many branches uh, of medical research for CRISPR as a therapy and the whole you know medical community is kind of waiting and seeing how it's going to turn out for this blinding eye disorder so as much as uh, like I know myself I have a degenerative retinal condition you know it's not fun, but it's very exciting to think that some of the most promising technology in the world now is actually first being used for um, this type of disease. So uh, definitely, definitely encouraging. I wanted to just to touch on something. Um, your lab seems to be working on a little bit of a different strategy and that is producing functional proteins that are not full length. Could you maybe talk to that a little bit as to uh, what that means and why you're taking that as an approach for uh, therapy. Oh, yes, yes, de definitely. I would love to talk about it. Thank you for asking this question. Um, so one of the reasons why uh, CRISPR technology is also very attractive is because, and also what we do is, uh, I will come to that, you know, conventional gene therapy tells us that Whatever gene is defective, you take that gene, you put it back into the cell. But you cannot just put it directly back into the cell, just in uh, DNA. It's not very efficient. It's not very effective. So what you need is what is called vehicles to take them into this, into inside a cell. And the most common vehicles that are used for delivering a gene are called adeno-associated viral vectors. And these are basically... Um, adeno-associated viruses are uh, safe, very safe viruses. Uh, what they do is this, they, they are not really infectious because their genome has been removed of everything that it could use to act as a virus. But in place of that, we put in our gene. And this adeno-associated virus as a vehicle can now deliver targets into the cell. And this is what actually led to the first ever FDA-approved drug for a degenerative eye condition called Leibach's congenital amaurosis, where adeno-associated virus delivers a gene into our uh, cells, into the disease cells, and makes them functional in the eye. So that was the first ever FDA-approved drug, which is, again, came from the eyes, which is very, very promising, became a, became a big news. Now, as much as it is very good for us, there are always disadvantages. And one of the biggest disadvantage, uh, biggest disadvantages of this adeno-associated virus is there is a limit to how much you can put in and get delivered into the cell. So now the question comes, if the gene of interest which we have to target is bigger than its capacity, how do we get that in safely and efficaciously? We need to always talk about safety. We would love to use adeno-associated viruses because we know they are very nice and they are safe to work with in, in uh, patients. It's been shown. But then how do we deliver those larger genes which are not amenable because they exceed the limit? So one thing would be CRISPR that you don't have to deliver the gene. You just go in and change the sequence. The other way to do that, what we do in our lab is, if the gene is longer, um, why don't we start looking at the gene and the protein it makes, and can we make a shorter version of that protein, of that gene, which can still fit into the, the adeno-associated virus, but can also maintain 
at least partial function. We know that it's not going to be the optimal function that is needed because for that you needed the full gene. But can we reduce the size to an extent that we can keep some function, which is not 100%, let's say 70%, 80%, so that when that goes into the cell, it starts making what it needs to do, it starts functioning what it needs to do, and the patient can start to recover a little bit at a time. And from no light perception, can we bring them to light perception? Then from light perception, can we improve it a little more? That is for uh, those um, gene therapy where it is not easy to just deliver the full gene. If, it, if we can deliver the full gene, then there is no doubt we should do that. But for larger genes, I think what, what we call them is now called making larger genes into mini genes. And those genes, what we have shown in our work is that this technology can work. It can improve uh, the uh, function of our, our retinal cells. And it has been done in other fields also in muscular dystrophy, actually, mini genes were used to, they were actually also being used in clinical trials. But in the eye, we are doing it for the first time and we are trying to now improve upon it. We published a paper in 2018 on this that we can improve the retinal function in an animal model, but now we are improving it further and uh, hopefully soon we will be getting them into next stages. So I think that, okay, that's, you know, it's really interesting. And uh, before we wrap up, I just want to maybe talk to that point a little bit. The, uh, the idea that you could use, you call it these truncated proteins or shortened proteins to uh, still benefit the, the patient, I think is really important. And, um, and even, even if you're not, you know, getting full recovery of the function in these cells, it might be sufficient to prevent further progression of the disease as well, right? Like there's a, there's a protein that's functioning good enough there, well enough that uh, the cells are not going to um, essentially die off. So I think that's uh, a very unique and um, approach to, to doing this. I hadn't heard a lot about that before. Like I've heard of people using other viral vectors, like lentiviral vectors and things to try to, how do we get bigger genes packaged in there? But you seem to be taking the other approach and saying, what's that, minimum viable product that we, that we really need to uh, have some function. So I think that's certainly interesting. We're going to be keeping an eye on, on, uh, on certainly on the future research that comes out of your lab and other labs doing similar things. Um, is there anything Thank else you. that you uh, wanted to touch on at all before we, before we wrap up? Um, no, I'm, I'm all set. I mean, this is wonderful. I, I like the way you, you said in the end that, you know, it will prevent future, uh, prevent the uh, degeneration or cell death of the mini genes. And I think that is exactly right. That is what we are also hoping that we can preserve whatever function is left and then make them a little more functional than what, what they are currently. Yes, thank you. I think that's great. So uh, listen, Dr. Khanna, it's certainly been a pleasure. Um, we're gonna have some follow-up questions for you as time goes on. So hopefully, um, that we haven't uh, put you in the hot spot too much here that we can have you back again in the future because it would certainly be a pleasure to have you back on. So I, I do want to take the opportunity to, uh, to thank you for joining us today. It's certainly been a, a good conversation. It's my pl pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you, Dr. Khan. It was indeed very formative and detailed. Uh, thank you for sharing your knowledge with us.